now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. The 2019 R&D season of Just Science will focus on the research featured at the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Science Research and Development Symposium. Some of these interviews were recorded at the 2019 AFS 71st Annual Scientific Meeting in Baltimore, Maryland. This conference, held by the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, is a multidisciplinary professional meeting that provides leadership and opportunities to advance science, foster research, and promote collaboration within the various forensic science disciplines. In episode one of the 2019 R&D season, Just Science interviews Dr. Katherine Scaffide and Dr. Daniel Sheardon about their use of alternative light sources for the detection and assessment of cutaneous bruising. Until the 1990s, it was commonly believed that clinicians and forensic professionals could estimate a bruise's age by analyzing its color change. Now, we know that isn't the case. To fill this gap in knowledge, Dr. Scaffide and Sheridan are working on creating a method for accurately assessing bruises by utilizing different filters to isolate wavelengths of light. Listen along as they discuss the characteristics of bruising, the factors affecting bruise perception, and their innovative use of paintballs in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. The FTCOE is funded by the National Institute of Justice and is operated by RTI International. Please visit all of our deliverables on ForensicCOE.org. Today we're going to be with an NIJ grantee, so NIJ has both funded this podcast as well as the research that we're going to be talking about, which is the analysis of alternative light and the detection of cutaneous bruises, a multi-site randomized control trial. And I'm glad to see we're doing an RCT. This is the first RCT research that we'll have covered uh, during our time here at the American Academy of Forensic Science in Baltimore in February of 2019. Our guests are... Dr. Catherine Scafidi, who has a PhD from my alma mater, uh, Johns Hopkins University, and, and, and in fact, Dr. Daniel Sheridan, you don't, your degree wasn't from uh, Hopkins, but you walked. Uh, I, I taught there for 12 years. Uh, Dr. Uh, Scafidi is an assistant professor at George Mason University's College of Health and Human Services and conducts research and mentors doctoral studies there. She worked as a forensic nurse for a number of years in the state of Maryland's medical examiner's office, was a death investigator for them as well. And her research has been in the use of colorimetry and examining the impact of skin color, fat, and sex on changes in bruise color over time. We're going to be talking about that in more detail as well as what it means to call her the paintball lady. That's very, <laughs> you're making me very nervous uh, over here. Also we, uh, with us today is her collaborator on this research is Dr. Daniel Sheridan, who has a PhD from the Oregon Health Sciences University and is currently a professor at Texas A&M University College of Nursing. Uh, Dr. Sheridan has extensive clinical experience with patients experiencing intimate partner violence, adult sexual assault, strangulation, 
the abuse, neglect of older and vulnerable persons, and has performed 500 forensic sexual assault intimate partner evidentiary exams, mostly at Baltimore's Mercy Medical Center Forensic Nurse Examiner Program. He also has been working in alternate light in his forensic clinical practice for many years, and we're very, very fortunate to have Drs. Scafidi and Sheraton, or as we're going to be calling them, Kat and Dan, with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Also, just so you all know, at listening at home or in your car or wherever you're picking up the podcast, the Good Doctors also gave a presentation at Tuesday's NIJ Research Symposium, and that will be available also at the time that this has been released. It'll be available archivally. So for those wanting a few more technical details about the uh, research, please refer to that. So let's start a little bit just to talk a little about your all's experience with respect to the assessment of bruises. So it's a notoriously qualitative thing to do is the assessment of bruises. So let's forget about ALS for a moment. How, how, do we, how are bruises generally assessed in practice right now? In general, bruises are caused, as most people who, who are involved in healthcare or, or this science know, bruises are caused by either blunt or squeezing forces. So it is the largest single cause of injury from uh, being victimized. So, so you know, blunt force assault, being punched, kicked. And so we've been looking at bruises for hundreds of years. For a long time, we thought we could date bruises by their color changes. And there used to be in a lot of nursing and medical textbooks, there would be color charts that said, if a bruise is between this color and this color, it's so many days old, between this color and this color, so many days old. And those color charts we thought were science because they were in textbooks, and then we would testify to that in court. But beginning in the 90s, research that originated in Australia began to say there is no science around dating bruises. And the science we do have suggests very strongly when we try to accurately date a bruise by its appearance, either looking at it face to face or looking at it with photos, we are statistically significantly wrong in the ability to date bruises. So as... as at least based on color alone. Based on color alone. Based on color alone. The, the best we could say is that based on the history of occurrence, this bruise would fall within the window of time. But there are still some people out there who think they can accurately date a bruise purely by its color, and there's no science to support that. And, and I would also suggest that not all researchers even agree with that, to be able to window give an, even a window, which is wonderful that as practitioners and researchers that we can uh, disagree on that fact. I personally never put an age on a, on a bruise whatsoever. But to go back to your question about how do we qualitatively assess bruises, uh, we usually describe them in terms of their appearance. Are they swollen? Are they, what is the color that we're seeing? Is there different colors? What is the location of the bruise? What is the size of it? We usually we provide some numbers in terms of quantifying how big it is. Sure. Um, shape? It, shape, absolutely. And, if, and the shape can be very important if there is some sort of pattern to it that might be possibly consistent with a mechanism. We talk about the location of it. If we're, a lot of pathologists go one step further, and this is clinically what we should be doing, measure the distance of the bruise uh, from its location to the floor or to the heel of the person, so we know really accurately where on the body that bruise is located. Okay. In duration, as far as swelling, is it associated with other bruises that are nearby, or is it just sort of in isolation? But all of these are very qualitative. 
Yeah, and it's it's difficult. I mean, you uh, you, you certainly Dan, you certainly uh, refer to the fact that these are common bruises. So you have a lot of child abuse cases. You have a lot of sexual assault cases. You have elder abuse cases. These are really important pieces of evidence. And so being able to get some sort of objective measure of them is, is, is important if you can. I think before we can even begin looking at objective measures of bruises is knowing what is a bruise and what isn't a bruise. Mm -hmm. Not everything that's purple under the skin or reddish under the skin is a mm. bruise. Good point. Uh, the term bruise and contusion can be used interchangeably. They are certainly synonymous. But there's another term that is often misused by medical professionals, physicians and nurses, and they all use the term ecchymosis or ecchymoses. And these are hemorrhagic lesions under the skin caused by any number of, of things and medications contribute and age contributes. Sure. So one of the things that generally can help one differentiate between what's a bruise and what might be a age or, or illness derived purple discoloration is bruises generally, fresh bruises generally hurt. You touch them and they're painful. Echematic lesions generally are not. Bruises, as, as Kat said, bruises, when you press on them, they're indurated or they're firm to touch. Echematic lesions generally are not. Bruises usually have pretty distinct margins of impact from whatever that person struck or whatever struck that person. Echematic lesions are usually much less marginated, more diffuse. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things the clinician has to look at, is this actually a bruise, an injury from a blunt or squeezing trauma, or is this potentially a, a medical pharmacologic condition, and especially when you talk about elderly, who are age puts them at risk, medications. Sure. So that's one of the things, and using the correct language in one's notes, in one's progress notes and medical notes, I think it's important to, to be able to know what it is you're describing. Is there an objective guide that is out there about bruise interpretation? How much has been done in terms of getting it down to consensus practice? Not really. There's really not much consensus, and I, even walking through some of the exhibits here today at the conference, there's quite a diversity in terms of ways you can document a bruise and some of the products that they have here. And, and I was pointing out to, to Dan that even one of them had a scale that says if it's this color, it's this old, and it's this... Oh, even I, today. Even today. today. Oh, well. Yeah, I cracked up when I saw that, <laughs> and, and, I, and I could not believe it. But there isn't a standard. We published one article where we gave some guidelines in terms of how physical assessments should be conducted, but in terms of some sort of grid that would show exactly what the cause of the bruise would be or the age or what have you. There is no science behind it at this point, unless sure. you can autopsy it. And pathologists have a much better advantage at that compared to us clinical practitioners. We just don't have that opportunity to cut people open and look at a histological level as to what the hemoglobin breakdown status is. So. So I have two more questions before we get into your research. Uh, one is, how much do bruises evolve after death, post-mortem? That's a good question, and I can only speak to my understanding of it. Uh, and I, again, I'm not a forensic pathologist, so I, mm -hmm. I can, can't speak. Essentially, the heart stops when the person dies. So right. with the heart not beating, it's no longer pumping blood. Therefore, the pressure at that area where the hemorrhage is happening in the skin has stopped. So at that point, no more bleeding should be going into the skin area. There also isn't going to be the enzymatic breakdown that's happening with that cascade of process of hemoglobin being broken down into its byproducts. That's going to be pretty much halted at that point. 
I know one of the biggest challenges uh, there are for death investigators and pathologists in terms of interpreting bruises is when they are in areas where there's lividity. Uh, lividity can sometimes mask bruises, and so that's why pathologists typically do a flaying, per se, or a, a large incisement area of the skin in order to look for bruises in areas in which there's lividity, because it's, it can be very challenging to distinguish lividity from bruising. But that's, that's one of the issues. This raises an interesting question for me, because I hadn't really thought about this. So are there elements to the coloration of bruises other than blood, because wouldn't because shouldn't there be Absolutely. there's all sorts of pus and other things so, that happen, right? So, so what are the elements of a bruise? The perception of a of, of bruising is confounded by four factors. First, the factors associated with the person who has the bruise, their skin color, the amount of fat in the area, because fat tends to have areas with more um, vasculature, tends to bleed more, and any other overlying lesions to the bruise, if they're dead, the lividity associated with it. So mm -hmm. there are numerous factors associated with the person that would contribute to uh, how that bruise would appear. The location of the bruise being another one of them. Certain areas of the body bruise more easily than others and have a different appearance. The second category is uh, characteristics of the injury itself in terms of the trauma that was created. There is some great animal research out there that is uh, has looked at the idea that, and we use this to support our own research in terms of the bruising mechanisms we picked, but injuries that are caused by a high-speed, low-weight object, such as a paintball, ultimately create bruises that are more superficial versus injuries that are caused by low-speed but high-weight objects tend to create deeper bruises that often aren't necessarily visible at the time of injury. So bruises sure. that are deeper tend to take longer periods of time to come up to the surface. So, and as an engineer, you probably can appreciate the, mm -hmm. these sure, differences yeah. in mm -hmm. physics. The other categories have to do with lighting. Mm -hmm. So the lighting that you use has a major impact in how you are able to see the bruise. Uh, wavelengths of light differ when, whether or not you're using fluorescent lighting, which is typical of exam rooms, versus, uh, you know, LEDs. Fluorescent lighting tends to make bruises appear a little bit more green because of the wavelengths mm -hmm. used, but there's such variation these days in terms of the types of lighting that you can have. And then the fourth category is characteristics of the person observing. All of us have a little smidgen of, not color blindness, but alterations in how we see sure. color. which kind of rods so, and cones and all exactly. that nonsense, right? Exactly, yeah. and mm -hmm. so we are going to, interpreting color is a very much a psycho physiological phenomenon. So we see color, we interpret it um, using our own culture and language and describe it in a certain way. And that's why assessments of bruises are notoriously subjective. And those subjective qualities are why it's important to do some research that allows you to do more objective assessment. Yes. <laughs> Correct. And to overcome some of those factors that are really making it hard to see bruises, especially on people who have dark skin. That has sure. been a major challenge in terms of us being able to just clinically assess victims of violence is their skin color. The other question, this is a much more loaded question, <laughs> and, and that is one of the most controversial types of bruising is bite mark examination. Because you, you mentioned the idea that one of the things you can look for is the mechanism of the bruise. I, in fact, I was just talking to a forensic pathologist just the other day 
he says, I don't believe in the, in the use of bite mark to identify or even excluding who did the, the bite. And in fact, he went this step further. He says, when they see something that might be a bite mark, they don't even report it as such. They say it's a hemispherical bruise, and they say that might be relevant for DNA swabbing, but they do not identify it as a bite mark. So what are the uncertainties associated with the mechanism of bruising and what we know about how to interpret that? Well, the mechanism of a bite is a combined, you have crushing, squeezing, mm-hmm. And if, if you bite hard enough, you can also then have tears of the skin. So you, could have, you can have different mechanisms that go in there. Uh, there was great hope 15 years ago that the science of forensic odontology was going to allow us to figure out exactly who the biter is. And, and there are now proponents on both sides of that, of that discussion. The, the best that I would say to a clinician is if you have a history that someone has been bitten, you have what appears to be a mouth sized with maybe some tooth imprints. You can say it's consistent, this injury, this bruise, is consistent with the patient's history of being bitten. Mm -hmm. But to say definitively it is a bite mark or whose bite mark it is, that should be avoided because we just, we don't have the science around bite marks. And, and, you know, we're still trying to work on some basic sciences with our study just around bruising to be able to say whether something is consistent with bruising based on using dedicated wavelengths of light with certain filters to be able to say it's consistent with with bruising. So certainly the bite bite mark research needs to continue, and you will have proponents on on both ends of the spectrum, but I think from a clinician's point of view, just say it would be consistent with the history of. Thank goodness for DNA. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, DNA, again, that's a perfect area. To get, to, to get some swab DNA, so that saliva is going to often leave some great DNA. Yeah, and not to get too deep into it, but of course even that's difficult because generally speaking a biter is somebody who's going to have some contact with the person more broadly. So, so the presence of DNA isn't necessarily Good even point. that. I get you, was uh, it consensual or not? Yeah, but there's all sorts can, of things there. If they can detect saliva though. That's true. Saliva as a bodily fluid would would give you a different view of it. You're thinking ahead. I appreciate that. So let's get into your research itself. Alternative light sources have been used before to examine bruises. So what is different about the research that you all are doing versus prior research in this area? So a, a little background. Obviously, we recognize that there is this clinical challenge that we have. Like I was saying, it's really hard to see bruises on people, especially with those with dark skin. And so we have a significant disparity there in how we assess patients who are of color versus individuals who are more fairly complected. Complected? Yeah, that's fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We recognize there are needs here. And the DOJ has, in their guidelines for sexual assault exams, has recommended the use of alternate light for the investigation of subtle injury. Now, some of the... This is the safer guidelines that you're referring to. Yes, yes. In both both editions. They labeled it an emerging technology. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, but we have seen, you can attest to this, is that there's been challenges to that in court. In the introduction, you talked about me doing a lot of uh, forensic exams in my clinical practice when I lived in Baltimore, and almost all of those were at the Mercy Medical Center right down the street from where we're sitting right now. And Mercy has been using, with their forensic nurse examiner program, they've been using an alternate light source for, well now it's been well over 10 years, Hmm. where we would examine our patients, not only the sexual assault patients, but also uh, domestic violence, strangulation patients. We would wave a handheld alternate light source over the areas of the body where they were reporting 
being traumatized. And at different wavelengths with different goggles, we were getting positive absorption consistent with the history being given to us by the patient. So I think one of the key things for your listeners to be aware of is we're not talking about fluorescence. We're talking about absorption because the hemoglobin underneath the skin, the escaped blood from the trauma, is going to be absorbing the light as it penetrates the skin, not fluorescing it. And these findings would be documented in the medical record, and for those cases that would go to trial, this would be evidence that would be introduced into the trial. But there were always these pre-trial evidentiary hearings. And in here in the Baltimore area, I think they call them Fry Reed hearings. But these, mm -hmm. are, these are hearings that the defense attorneys would put on before the actual case was heard, arguing where's the science around alternate light being able to show that that is a bruise or that is blood under there. And as Catherine was, was beginning to look at a dissertation topic, one of the things we realized, and she realized, and her committee encouraged her, is that we have this paucity of research around bruises in general. Not only that, how do we measure bruises and bruise color? And then, um, and she can talk about her prior research using paintballs for her dissertation, but how it has just been building from that area. We're about ready now to start crunching our final numbers, but we're hopeful we have some findings that will help guide the science. Before we get into all that, so going back to your question, so what is it that we're doing that is so different? So there's this clinical need that I think we pretty much well established. There has been a handful of studies that have looked at this idea of alternate light being used for bruise detection. And if you walk down the exhibit halls, you'll see some of them advertise it. But like I said, there's only a handful of studies that have looked at this. And you can't really base uh, a practice on a handful of studies. And, and so with the studies that have been done, some of the challenges that they've had is, is either small sample sizes, problems with pre-screening their participants to make sure they didn't have some other artifact that would be mimicking a bruise anyway on the skin. They didn't screen them throughout the process of following them to see if they re-traumatized their arms um, sure. or legs or wherever they were looking at in terms of the bruises. And they also didn't really follow them for very long. And finally, they didn't really get at which wavelengths and filters are the best ones. With an alternate light, there are numerous options in terms of bandwidths to use for bruise detection. Essentially, alternate light means light of a very specific wavelength. So you have these filters, they isolate certain wavelengths of light and block out everything else, essentially. But what we don't really know is which wavelengths work the best, which filters work the best, and more specifically, which wavelengths and filters work the best depending on what your skin color is. Because what works mm -hmm. for somebody who has very fair skin is not going to work well for somebody with dark skin. And couple that with add at what age of when the bruise Bruises, occurred. Yeah. Sure. So maybe a particular wavelength when it's two days old with a particular filter might be best. But maybe a week or 10 days later, would a different wavelength and a different filter help us visualize it even better? None of that was in any prior research whatsoever. What you're saying is that the spectrum that you're looking at of whatever it is you're targeting is changing over time. 
but hemoglobin is a chemical, so it shouldn't change really chemically over time. Well, it breaks down. It breaks down. It breaks down. It breaks down. Yeah. So the spectrum changes over time. So I assume that we have a pretty good knowledge, though, yes. about how the spectrum of hemoglobin changes depending upon whether it's degraded or oxidized or sure. whatever else it would um, be. Sure. And it depends on if it's oxyhemoglobin or it's deoxyhemoglobin that you're right. looking at. But generally speaking, hemoglobin has a narrow absorption peak around 415 nanometers and and a broader absorption peak in the 550 range versus bilirubin, which has uh, an absorption peak that's rather broad in the 450, 475 range. And bilirubin so, is often in, is that the yellowishness that's, so that, in a bruise? That tends to contribute to the yellow um, perception of the bruise. Okay. And so hemoglobin is broken down through a, a cascade of enzymatic processes, so, and ultimately results in bilirubin with some release of hemosiderin and, and some other different components. But the main ones that typically people focus on in terms of doing a histological assessment of mm -hmm. bruises is the presence of you know oxyhemoglobin, deoxyhemoglobin, and bilirubin. Those are typically what pathologists mainly look at sure. in terms of the breakdown. And that, they tend to contribute the most in terms of a bruise appearance. Sure. I look on this very similarly as an engineer. I look on this as hyperspectral imaging is basically what yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're, you kind of know what you're looking for chemically, and so you just focus in on a particular window and see what's going on in that window. And that's basically what you've done in your study. So which, so are you, are you focused on those three spectral windows or are some well, we subset just, of we, them? Or we actually that? decided to keep it very broad in terms of not limiting ourselves to certain wavelengths. So we ended up using uh, 365 nanometers, which is in the UV range. Then we did 415, 450, 475, 495, 515, and 535 nanometers to take us all the way through most of where all the absorption peaks we would expect. And then we use different combinations of filters um, based on which wavelength we're looking at. So we've been testing 11 different combinations of alternate light. Well, I appreciate that because I think uh, I think sometimes people just say, well, ALS is one thing. And of course it just isn't. It really is very, very heavily dependent upon what your choices are about what wavelengths you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So we're specifically using, well, with UV, we're just wearing UV protective glasses. Mm -hmm. But then we're looking at 415 and 435 with a yellow filter. Then with the orange filters, well, 415 all the way through 515. 515 mm -hmm. with orange. We went with using red filters. Uh, we're using red filters for 515 and 535. Uh, you looked at those very particular windows, and then you looked at a fairly broad set of participants in your study as well. So tell, talk to me about your participants. It's probably the part of it that we're most proud of. Yes. Um, because this is a incredibly diverse sample. We used a sampling strategy, which I used previously um, in some earlier research, but essentially it's, it's called quota sampling. Because the skin color plays such a huge role in how we see bruises, it was really important that we ensure that we don't leave it up to chance that we would have a diverse sample in our um, study. So we used this quota sampling technique to capture people with six different skin color categories. And we did that using spectrophotometry, actually more specifically colorometry values that we captured using our spectrophotometer. Sure. Um, so there is a uh, established formula using values within the LAB, CIE LAB color space that we collected 
from the upper right arm from our, all of our participants. We plug those numbers into our, the formula and it categorizes the person in one of the six categories, ranging from very light to dark. So we ensured we had equal representation of all six skin color categories and we were pretty successful with that. So we have a very, very diverse sample. So we can really study whether or not certain wavelengths perform differently depending on the skin color. Sure. Now there will be other variables as well. Some people will bruise more easily than others and heal differently than others, but that's not something you could probably screen no. for. No. The numbers, we were able to power the study with the variability in skin tone. We didn't power the study to these other factors, but we are actually looking at them. So we're obviously looking at, at gender. We had larger numbers of women who volunteered to be bruised in our study than men. Mm -hmm. uh, we are also looking at uh, BMI. So we're doing some uh, weight and we're also doing some caliper measurements to be able to look at BMI. Previously in my, my other research, I looked at subcutaneous fat mm -hmm. in terms of how it might affect the appearance of the bruise. And I found there was actually no relationship between subcutaneous fat and bruise color appearance. But anecdotally, what we ran into some of our volunteers who were these big muscular bodybuilders who had like no fat but tons of muscle, hardly bruised at all. So what we're doing differently in this current study is we are actually capturing the ratio of muscle to fat in the arm. So we actually measure the circumference of the arm and use the calipers to assess the dimension of fat and then there's a ratio formula that you put it into so we can understand how much muscle there is compared to fat and how that might, we can evaluate how that might impact bruise appearance. So, so you had your, uh, your population that you had picked out. You're the paintball lady, so tell us about how that worked. Well, you want to control for the exact age of the bruise, and it's challenging to be able to have any kind of valid way of doing that outside of making the bruises yourself. So we use two different methods, both of which have been published, one of which I used paintball previously, but essentially paintball a very popular sport in the United States, and I remember playing it quite a bit in high school, is a very effective way of creating bruises. And if you have played, you would know this, that it sure. actually creates bruises rather reliably. But essentially the process involves the person who's receiving the bruise, and they receive the bruise for, with this mechanism to the upper out of outer arm. So they roll up their sleeve and it's their upper um, deltoid area. We have them stand behind a plywood barrier with a little two by four inch window, and there's a piece of rubber over it. And so they put their arm flush against the rubber, and then we fire a paintball pellet from 20 feet. So it's not point blank range. <laughs> it doesn't matter that much actually, sure. Yeah. And uh, we, yeah keep the speed calibrated within a certain feet per second. You know, in terms of the experience, I think on average our participants say that the pain from a zero to 10, 10 being the worst pain of your life, zero being no pain, rates about a seven or eight on impact. It's, sure. it's, it's smarts, it's a good way of saying it. And it I, and I, and I, and, he and, and both I of us both have shot multiple every times. Every single one of our research team, <laughs> if we hire a new research nurse, yep. we have to, we do a lot of the uh, Training. paintball bruising ourselves but mm. all of our team needs to know that so both of our arms have been shot for science on more than one occasion and even though I know I've been I know what it's going to feel like it, every time it's, it's, a, it's a seven or an eight yep. on impact on impact and we are doing a pain scale mm -hmm. okay, so. we also are measuring pain 30 minutes later at their first reading so we wait 30 minutes for the first reading and almost everybody is saying 30 minutes later well unless I touch it it's a zero or a one right if I touch it maybe it's a two 
So the pain goes away, but it, it stings it on impact. And yes. it's visible right away, So, sure. which is why we chose this mechanism, because as I said earlier, we were looking for a mechanism that would result in a more superficial bruise um, right. at that point. Must have um, been a joy to put that through human subjects review. I've become an expert at this. So I, it, what's funny is going back to Hopkins when I initially did research there, it was more challenging. And we had to have a uh, uh, one of our research uh, committee members um, go and testify what it felt like to get shot because she played paintball with her, her kids. Okay. We, and, and some of the IRB members had never heard of paintball at yes. Johns Hopkins. Yeah. Oh. So there's a lot of safety oh. measures. We built in a very extensive pre-health, pre-injury screen. So these are healthy subjects. Yes. And they, they, the age range is 18 to 65, theoretically. I don't think we've had someone no. that old. We've had some people in their 50s. It's a relatively young, healthy, pre-screened group. And so the one of the things we have to be cautious about is, you know, how these findings, could they be interpreted if someone were on a... A, a, a blood thinner, um, uh, some other medication, had an underlying illness. So, but we had to make sure for IRB reasons we had a healthy population. Yeah. Sure. So, um, uh, you also did some blunt force. We also use another published method um, that was created by Lombardi et al. Uh, where in their study they did a four ounce steel marble through a PVC pipe at five feet onto the anterior forearm resting on a table. We tested that method and its intention was really to make more of a subtle, latent bruising. We ended up upping the amount of ounces to six ounces just to try to make more of a visible bruise. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, that is the other method of creating bruises. The idea is that this low speed, high weight impact should create deeper bruises. And we have noticed that, that these bruises tend to take longer to appear. Mm -hmm don't always appear because unfortunately they are, the amount of bleeding is I think much more reduced um, using this mechanism. But it does give us another bruise to evaluate this method of uh, detection to see if the alternate light behaves in, this, in the same way as it would for the paintball bruise. Sure. And you followed everyone for up to eight weeks. So we followed everyone up to four weeks. Up to four weeks. So, so it's a two-site study. Yes. So at our site at Texas A&M, we only follow them for approximately 30 days, 21 visits over a 30-day period of time. 21 visits is a lot. That that's, is a lot. That is a lot. And Nine in, visits in the first three days alone. That's a commitment. In the first it. week, there's 11 visits in the first week. Yeah. Okay. Catherine has a subset. I'll let you talk yes. about your subset. And, and so, he, so Texas A&M collected half the data. We've collected half the data. At my study site, on a subsample of 30 participants, we continued to follow them for an additional four weeks, so eight weeks total because we really wanted to see how far out could we really see the bruise. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes in the forensic realm, when you're working with living victims, the clinical assessments are, are focused on a very short window in the beginning, so maybe up to five days, really. Um, we wanted to, as part of the study, see if we could actually capture these injuries all the way up to four weeks or even potentially to eight weeks. So on this subsample that we use quota sampling again to ensure yes. diversity, um, we followed them all the way to eight weeks. And we are, we're on a handful able to still see that paintball bruise all the way up to eight weeks. And to be eligible for the, the second phase of the study, one had to have a visible bruise through some Something. method, Something. some alternate light or visual light yeah. uh, to be eligible to be a part of that follow-up subset. Yeah. 
again, I'll, I'll refer folks to the um, archived presentation you all gave to go into more detail about the study and, and how you conducted it. Let's get down to some of the, some of the conclusions. First of all, uh, was there a great deal of variation with respect to how the ALS was able to detect and describe the brews across the different uh, populations of and the color sets. So I have some bad news for you. Yes. All we were able to really show at this uh, uh, conference is our very preliminary descriptive results. Okay. And so I'm happy to share those with you. We would love to hear um, your descriptive results. So essentially, what we found is that there was a increased frequency in our detection of the bruises underneath alternate light in general okay. compared to normal light. And when I say normal light, I'm referring to white light as the comparison. We did notice also a increase in the visibility of how well our ability to see the bruise was enhanced across all those assessments when we looked at it collectively. We also found specifically in our upper arm bruises that the 415, 450 nanometer the wavelengths tended to perform the best, regardless of yellow or orange filter that we were using. That's where we are at right now. Our last participant is actually in the study right now. Getting her last Gus, measurements last, as last we speak. Last couple measurements next couple weeks. So we are anxiously, anxiously waiting for her to be done so we can dive into the data and figure out which wavelengths perform the best over time based on skin color, based on all of these other factors, and really get at the heart of what goes into um, bruise appearance underneath this alternate light. Well, we're going to be very interested to see that. So in the meantime, I suppose I would say to, to folks, uh, treat with caution yes. the examination of bruises using alternate light sources. Yes. And not only treat with caution, and there are a lot of forensic nurse examiner programs or SANE programs or forensic physicians who are beginning to use alternate light. And I wouldn't want to discourage the use. I'd, I'd want to encourage the use. But it's better to be conservative at this point mm -hmm. to say that if they are seeing absorption, mm -hmm. just to make sure that they document it's consistent with the history being provided by the patient. Do not say uh, unequivocally that this is a bruise. It is not diagnostic at this point. And, and even though we're optimistic that our findings will strengthen the science around using alternate light, even then it, it wouldn't be enough to be diagnostic because we're not in a position in clinical practice to actually incise the person's skin to see is there escaped blood, ex exacerbated blood underneath, which would be evidence of a bruise. So I think it's always better to be in the forensic world conservative. But again, I would encourage, I, I've used it in my clinical practice for a long time. Mm -hmm. I would encourage those who are using it to continue to use it but be very conservative in its interpretations, especially in court. But I guess I would add to that that they should probably be uh, increasing their awareness of what kind of alternate light that they're using so that they have some idea about what it is that they're actually detecting in terms of the type of hemoglobin, the bilirubin, whatever else it might be and over time. And there are clearly going to be other skin anomalies, other skin lesions that will also absorb light. And we don't really even understand what all those are yet. That's another area of research that needs to be done. I supervise some published research out of Mercy Medical Center where we use topical skin products mm -hmm. to see if there are everyday topical skin products that might absorb light and potentially mimic a bruise. And uh, in the published study, we found that uh, a particular brand of women's makeup 
absorbed light and could be a potential false positive for a bruise. A follow-up study that we're analyzing the data now suggests there's a number of everyday products that women might use on their skin that can give you a false positive. So that if you are using alternate light and, and you see an area that absorbs, well obviously you want to initially treat it as if it's a bruise. You want to photograph it if you have the ability to photograph in the dark. You want to be able to swab it for potential touch DNA if it was some sort of a punch or squeezing or, or holding. Then after you've collected any of that DNA, you may also want to try to clean it. And, and every day, one of the most common things we found in, in hospital settings is the alcohol wipes. Alcohol wipes was one of the most effective cleaners. You may want to try to clean the area, re-examine it under alternate light, and if that absorption went away, then that would support that that area absorption was more likely a false positive, a topical skin product that was an artifact. So there, the science is still evolving, but we are now finally beginning to look at this science, and, and I think our study will help propel that we also found there's great variation in the goggles, the colored goggles, even sent out by the same distributor, that the pair of yellow goggles, if we measure them, each pair of yellow goggles is, is different. And is, is that a variable? Does that affect one's ability to see it? And yellow goggles by company A might be totally different yellow than company B. Does that have an effect? So there's so many spin-offs research that needs to be done that these were incidental findings that we didn't realize when we started our study. Sure. Well, that's that's excellent, and I hope that we're able to not only understand these better, but also get, as we said, uh, you know, up to a, some sort of objective uh, measure of bruises, and hopefully that will also strengthen and give more power to the interpretations that are being done. Well, we do plan on submitting at least one paper, if not more, to next year's Academy of Forensic Science meeting, and if you're here next year, we probably will have some pretty hard data at that point we might be able to share with you. I also have to say, as forensic nurses, to show that we have a, a tremendous amount to offer in terms of advancing the science. And here in the American Academy of Forensic Science, I think forensic nurses are, are becoming much more part of the conversation in terms of contributing to uh, the science behind injuries and, and pathology and, and understanding how to work with victims. So. We're excited to be part of that and contributing in our way. So thank you, Dr. Scafidi, and thank you, Dr. Sheridan, for being on Just Science today and talking with us just, just about looking at bruises more carefully. And I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in or downloading our podcast. And thank you to the National Institute of Justice for their support for the research and for the FTCOE. Next week, Just Science interviews Brittany Coates about a method to predict infant skull fractures using fundamental mechanics. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.